Hey everyone, and welcome back to the Practicology Podcast, where we are bridging the gap between the ancient scriptures and everyday life, because the Bible belongs not only beside the stack of commentaries, but also next to the pile of dirty dishes. This is episode number 30 of the Practicology Podcast, but it's episode four in our special series going through Psalm 103 as part of our very first summer challenge here at the Practicology Podcast. We hope many of you are taking up the challenge, which is to memorize the whole of Psalm 103 along with us. There is one in my household who is already up to about verse 12 or 13 as we record this in early August. And this week's memory section for this episode is verses 16 to 20. I'm joined by our regular co-host, Mike Knox. Mike, why don't you read us or quote to us if you have them memorized those verses? It'll be a, a refresher for everyone and they're memorizing and it'll help our listeners who are not doing the challenge to understand what you're going to be talking about in today's episode. I would love to. I'm going to include verse 15 as well for context, even though it's not part of this week's section. So here we go, starting at verse 15. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord, what a contrast, hey, Matthew, mm. uh, between our frailty and his, his forever love. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. That was excellent. Like It sounded almost like you were reading it. It was so good. Now, remember, everyone, we finished our last episode pointing out that three times we read the notion of fearing God in this psalm. Two were in last week's memory section, verse number 11, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. Verse 13, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. And now the third falls in this memory section, what you've just read or quoted, but the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. And Mike, you're going to tell us today about our fear of fearing God. We said that sometimes this language of fearing God stumbles and upsets us a little bit. Why do you think that is? You're right, Matthew. I was having a little Bible study about a year ago with a new believer, and we got talking about some of the passages he was reading in his own uh, scripture time each day. And he mentioned that when he comes across the phrase, the fear of the Lord, or this command to fear God, how it really bothers him. And of course, he's not alone in that. Many of us have a fear about fearing God. And when I try to drill into this fear, uh, to seek to understand where it's coming from, I sense that there are two kinds of fear about fearing God. There's an emotional kind and an existential kind. The emotional fear about fearing God goes something like this, and maybe I'll just express it like my new believing friend might put it. He might say, all my life I've been terrified by God, and I felt cut off from him, and I didn't want to face him. Then I heard the good news of the gospel, that he loved me, cared for me, so much in fact that he gave me his son Jesus to die on the cross and rise again for me, and I heard that now I can have a relationship with God simply through faith in Christ. And when I did believe in the Lord Jesus, I felt tremendous joy and relief. And I quickly learned that my relationship was so wonderful that God was now my father and I was his dearly loved child. 
But then I started reading the Bible, especially the Old Testament, and it keeps talking about fearing God. I don't want to go back to being terrified of God. Why does the Bible tell me to? That's interesting. I guess, in other words, we naturally perceive a bit of a dichotomy between fearing God and the Bible's assurances that God is our loving Father. That's right. We hear, fear God, and we think, you mean I can't come close to him? I need to cower and draw back? You mean he isn't loving after all? That's the emotional kind of fear we have about the Bible's fearing God language. And I also mentioned a second kind, which I've called an existential kind. And let me try to illustrate this now. Say you follow this weird podcast where they have summer challenges that get you to memorize Psalm 103 in the Bible. And as strange as this sounds, when you actually start doing it, you, you start to enjoy it. Lots. The words are life-giving. The character of God they reveal is breathtaking. You're enjoying the Lord's benefits to you of forgiveness and eternal life, as well as the temporal blessings in the here and now. And you get to the mid part of the psalm where some of the assurances about God's love to you are so precious, they almost seem too good to be true. But then you notice, ah, yes, there is a catch. Yes, his steadfast love is as high as the heavens, but only to those who fear him. Yes, he does show tender fatherly compassion to you if you're one of those who fears him enough. Yes, his steadfast love is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. The emotional fear is, I thought God was my loving father. Instead, I'm supposed to be scared of him. The existential fear is, these are the sweetest promises and assurances I have ever heard in my life, but I'm not sure I qualify for them. Yeah, so then we're kind of wondering, am, am I fearing God enough? And if I'm not fearing him enough, then maybe the love and compassion that this psalm speaks about isn't really as great for me as you've made it out to be. Yeah, exactly. And to be honest, I have experienced both of these doubts or fears. I'm not just talking about believers I run into and have conversations with, but these are fears that have welled up inside of me many a time as I've read some of these verses. So I want to try and give some help to any others who have felt these fears as well. All right. Well, we're looking forward to hearing this today, Mike, as you speak about our fear of fearing God. And before you do that, there is a way our listeners can help themselves. Let me remind you all, brothers and sisters, please keep memorizing this psalm because everyone who finishes will receive a copy of a book. You may remember Mike talking about that in previous episodes. And remember what this book is called. I don't know if we told you before or not. It's called, What Does It Mean to Fear the Lord? It's a new short little book by Michael Reeves, and if you read it, you will almost certainly get some help from it about this language of fearing God. Yes, and this book is an abridgment of a longer book by Reeves called Rejoice and Tremble, The Surprising Good News of the Fear of the Lord. And I've received a lot of help from this book in preparing this episode. So Matthew's right, finish the challenge, and then you can read up on it yourself and be blessed. But in the meantime, we'll just say a few things now to maybe offer a little bit of help. Let me start with the existential fear about fearing God, the kind that reads these verses in Psalm 103 and worries, maybe I don't qualify because I probably don't fear God as much as I should. So let's look at Psalm 103 itself. What clues does this Psalm give to help us understand this phrase? Negatively, it tells us what fear of God does not mean. It does not mean we are sinless or have reached a state of spiritual perfection. The very first benefit David celebrates is the forgiveness of all his sins in verse 3. And then in verse 10, it says, He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. 
For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. In other words, people who fear God and who can therefore claim the comfort of these verses clearly have sinned, do sin, and will sin. People who fear God still do sin. So that's the negative help that this psalm gives us. Those who fear God does not equal those who never, ever fail or sin or struggle in their Christian life. Good point. Thanks for clarifying. Positively, it tells us what it does mean. It defines people who fear God as people who are real believers in God. The genius of Hebrew poetry is not that it rhymes, it rarely does, but its use of parallelism. Often we can understand one line better in a psalm by comparing it to another line that is parallel to it. The second line of verse 11 says, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. The second line of verse 12 says, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Hmm. These two lines are in parallel with each other. David is saying, those who fear God equal us. That's who those who fear God are. It's, it's us. Who is the us? It's the people of Israel who are in the sanctuary worshiping God with him. It's his fellow believers. And then in verses 17 to 18, David uses some more parallelism to further clarify and define. Those who fear God in verse 17 are those in verse 18 who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. All of these words are Old Testament covenant words, keeping covenant, remembering, doing commandments. This is the Old Testament way of describing people who are true, genuine believers. I'll just give you a few other examples quickly where the Bible is describing people as fearing God means they are people who trust him and believe in him truly. So Psalm 33 verse 18, behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love on those who trust in him, in other words. Uh, Psalm 128, verse 1, Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. This is someone who trusts the Lord and has lives a lifestyle of wanting to walk in his ways. So if we're struggling with what you call the existential fear, Mike, it's not so much a question of, am I being a good enough believer to claim these assurances of God's love and comfort? It's more a question Am I a true believer? Not am I being a good enough Christian, but am I a, a Christian? Yeah, am I a Christian? That's right. And of course, you're using New Testament words there, not Old Testament words. But even in the Old Testament, consider consider Psalm 130 verse 4. But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. This is such an amazing verse. The songwriter says, God forgives us from our sins so that we'll fear him. In other words, fearing God is not the way we get saved, it's the result of getting saved. In fact, fearing God is one of the provisions of the new covenant. In Jeremiah 32 verse 40, God says, I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And listen to this, he says, I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. And you can read the terms of the new covenant in Hebrews 8. This is the new covenant that goes along with what we call our New Testament. This is relevant to us today. God says, I will be merciful to their sins. In other words, I'll forgive them. And then he says, the basis, the basis on which, on which you'll know me. He says, each one will know the Lord because I've forgiven you of your sins. Each one can know me, the Lord. And then the logic of the covenant says that as we know him and enjoy his forgiveness, guess what? 
will want to do his will, God says, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. In other words, the Lord puts the fear of him into our hearts at conversion. If you are someone who has trusted in Christ for salvation and are genuinely his, then you are one of the people included in this phrase, those who fear the Lord. That is great, Mike, and I appreciate the references to the new covenant because, of course, that new covenant is emphasizing what God has done and what God is doing more than putting the onus upon us, right? Mm-hmm. That's right. It's what's called the one-party covenant, right? And God God fulfills all the terms of the covenant. All right. So you've helped us with that existential fear. If we are believers in Christ, we do fear the Lord. God has worked in our hearts for that end. What about the emotional fear? I suspect this is the one that would cause the most trouble for our listeners today. Yeah, this is where Reeves is really helpful. And I can only give a partial answer for a fuller treatment. Do read his book. But one thing he shows is that there are different kinds of fear. One kind of fear drives us away. Another kind of fear draws us close. Before we were saved, we had the first kind. It's a sinful kind of fearing God where we tremble at the thought of God and we want to get away from him. Demons have this kind of fear of God, according to James chapter 2. Remember, it says there that they, they believe in God and they shudder, they tremble. And remember the demons in the, in the Gerasene demoniac there, in the Gospels. They, they asked Jesus if he had come before the time to torment them. So let's be very clear, this is not the kind of fear God wants us to have toward him. He does not want us to cower before him, to draw back in terror and flee from him. A Christian's fear of God is not terror at God that pulls back from him. And and just to prove this, uh, in Exodus 20, verse 20, Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. You see those two different kinds of fear in the, in the same verse. The one is saying, don't tremble and, and pull back from the Lord. God has come here at Sinai so that the fear, the proper fear of him might be in you. And then just quickly, First Samuel 12, Samuel says to the people, don't be afraid. And then just a few verses later, he says, only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. And so the Bible is very clear that this kind of fear is not a pullback in terror, but there must be another kind of fear then, a fear that draws you close. So let me just give you some imperfect analogies and then uh, show some verses to support this. Many people are drawn to experiences that fill them with a kind of fear and adrenaline, whitewater rafting, parachuting, crazy rides at amusement parks, scary stories. They experience thrill and fear at the same time. Or think about Niagara Falls or the Grand Canyon. They are terrible, awesome, frightening, and yet we are drawn to them. We want to behold them and experience them. At Niagara Falls, people pay money to get right under them. So does that help us a bit? Our fear of these things is also a delight in them, a love for them. Now let's turn back to scripture. According to Isaiah 11, verse 3, the Lord Jesus feared God, but it was a kind of fear that was sheer delight. It says, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. In Deuteronomy 6, verse 2 to 5, fearing God is parallel with loving God. It says that you may fear the Lord your God, and then it says you shall love the Lord your God. So there, fearing God, fear and love are parallel. They're they're somehow akin with one another. 
In Jeremiah 33, people fear and tremble at God, not because of his power or his judgment or his holy terror, but because of his extreme goodness and love. God there speaks in Jeremiah 33 of how he's going to forgive them. And there'll be joy and praise and glory. And it says they shall fear and tremble because of all the good and all the prosperity I provide for it. Uh, in Hosea 3 verse 5, fear of God is something that draws people to God, not away from him. It says the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord. And it says they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness. Uh, if I could just give one more biblical example, Michael Reeves also mentions the widow of Nain who who's just lost her son and the Lord Jesus sees her, has compassion and raises up that young man to life again. And what does it say? Fear sees them all and they glorified God. It doesn't say in the story, you know, God smote thousands of people for their sin and fear sees the onlookers. It doesn't say God split the earth and swallowed up all the hypocrites and fear seized all who heard about it. Of course, God does judge sin and that does cause fear. But this is talking about another kind of fear the kind of fear that arises not because of a terrible display of God's wrath and judgment, but the kind of fear that arises because of God's goodness and grace. Michael Reeves puts it this way. He says, the nature of the living God means that the fear which pleases him is not a groveling, shrinking fear. He is no tyrant. It is an ecstasy of love and joy that senses how overwhelmingly kind and magnificent, good and true God is, and that therefore leans on him in staggered praise and faith. Charles Spurgeon said that in this childlike fear that we're to have, there is not an atom of that fear which signifies being afraid. The nearer we get to him, the father, the happier we are. Mm. I have a little experience from my own life that maybe helps a wee bit. When I was six years old, I nearly drowned in Whitney Lake, north of Kenora, Ontario. And I would have drowned had it not been for Alan Patton, who dove in under the water and saved me. I think he was only 15 or 16 at the time, but he became a hero to me. And I've only seen him a handful of times since the rescue. But I remember one time my parents took us to Alan's place uh, where he and his wife were, were living and took us to his place for supper. And I remember feeling, I don't want to do anything that would displease this man who saved my life. That's a little bit what the believer's fear of God is like. A fear that draws me to him, not away. A fear arising not because he threatened me, but because he saved me. A fear not that he'll harm me, but rather a deep fear of me doing anything that would harm my enjoyment of my relationship with him. Again, Michael Reeves says, It is the overwhelmed devotion of children, marveling at the kindness and righteousness and glory and complete magnificence of the Father. It is the fear that our sins might part us from the warmth of enjoyed communion with God. And Spurgeon said, holy fear leads us to dread anything which might cause our father's displeasure. Mike, those words were actually awesome, fantastic, and very helpful, challenging, encouraging at the same time. That's what I love. And what's just striking me right now uh, is these comments about fearing God in the Psalm come after he has made references to other things in the psalm that God has done for us, you know, forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity. And it's unfolded some of his character. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. So he's already highlighted the kindness of God to us, the greatness of God's character. And then we are 
given these texts about fearing God, which kind of fits with what you've been saying, right? Mm-hmm. That's that's absolutely right. Yeah. Well, thank you for helping us with these questions, our fear of fearing God and the struggles that we have with that. Uh, your examples remind us a little bit, I think, of C.S. Lewis' Chronicles of Narnia. What a great story that is. And you can think about that time when uh, Susan is becoming a bit scared as she hears, as she finds out that Aslan is a lion. She says, uh, a lion? I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I would feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. And Mr. Beaver replies, safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Well, not only quoting the words, Matthew, but even uh, acting it out so well. Yeah, Lewis gets this tension so well. And maybe I could add one more example to go with it. My friend Becky Q used to have a big German shepherd named R.D. And she would always tell my girls, don't run away from him. It's dangerous to run away from him. Run to him. God is so awesome and terrible that the only safe thing to do is not to run away from him, but to run towards him. Amen. Let us close by borrowing the words of Acts 9 and 31. I pray that you will walk in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Mike, for this teaching. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in to another study from Psalm 103 as part of our August Summer Challenge. We've got just a little bit more to go through in this psalm. We hope you'll join us again for next week's episode, and we hope you get to work again on memorizing these wonderful scriptures. Yeah, thanks for being with us. And let me leave you with this verse that we memorized. The steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. May you know much of that love this week as you walk before him. Amen. The Lord bless you all. Mm -hmm.